There's one piece in the uh, Rabbi Kalevsky has, they sent it to me. Rosh Hashiva, Baltimore. He had some pieces on Tisha uh, B'Av. One here on Halakha, which is a big question. <coughs> so we know you're not allowed to learn Torah on Tisha B'Av. But the Gemara Ta'anit says on Daf Lamed, Tanur Banan, Kol Mitzvot, Anohagot Be'ever, Anohagot Be'tish'a Be'av. Asur Ba'akhila, Be'shtiya, Be'sikha, Be'ni'arat Ha'sandar, Be'tashmish Ha'mita. Ve'asur, Le'klot Ba'torah, Be'nevi'im Ube'ketubim. Ve'lishnot, Ve'meshna, Ve'talmud. So that's a braita. You can't learn Tanakh, or you cannot learn Mishnah, you cannot learn Talmud. Aval, Korehu b'mkom she'enu ragil l'klot. Shoneh b'mkom she'enu ragil l'shnot. But you're allowed to read things that you're not familiar with. Kandereh, that that's not, uh, that's not going to bring him to joy, or if that, if that is the reason. It's difficult stuff that you're not familiar with. Bekoreh b'kinot, or not, that's what we could read. ואיוב, דברים הרעים שבירמיה, ותינוקות של בית רבן בטלים בו. התינוקות, they close the schools. משום שנאמר, פקודי השם ישרים משמחי לב. So the פקודים, the statues of God, are straight, and they bring a person to happiness. It seems that that's the reason it's the reason for something. I don't know what it's the reason for, but it's the reason for something. The Be'yuda Omer, Af eno kore v'mkom she'enu ragil l'klot, v'eno shalem v'mkom she'enu ragil l'shanot. So he holds the Be'yuda, you cannot even read things that you're not familiar with. But, kore hu be'yog v'kinot. V'hine katvu ha'tosfot, v'shem t'shuvot l'benu Yitzchak. שרבנו יעקב תבנותם, בימי נערותו היה אוסר אבד בכל דברי תורה. רבנו תמוס אוסר אבדים, when it came to all דברי תורה, ואפילו בדברים הרעים. אגב, הפסוק בא אבד that says, הענק דום. דום sounds like, be quiet. ומדלו תני לי בשמעתין, לעתיד. כמו תשעה באב. ביי, היה בברייתא ביי תשעה באב, זה מתיר. דברים רעים, איוב, קינות. אבל באבלות, we have no such ברייתא that puts any dispensation for them to learn certain things. ומדלותני לה בשמעתין להתיר, כמו תשעה באב, ברייתא בגספולת. ובימי זקנה וזבנותם. זבנותם used to say, אבלים cannot learn anything. ובימי זקנותו חזר והתיר. Well, then he went back to Benutam, and he was matir. Shelo ne'emar ha'anekdom, ela adivarim ha'mesamechim, velo adivarim ha'ra'im. No, it's true the Nabi said be quiet, but he only said to be silent on things that will bring a person to simha, but not on divarim ra'im. V'nei atur in yore de'ah, siman shin pedalet, mevi bet ha'peshitot, shelebenu Yaakov. Ezeh l'shonot, ez natur. Yesh omlim, afagav, shebetesha be'av, מותר לקרות באיוב, באבל אסור. כמו שהוא חמור, 
מתשעה באב, גם כן משעד הבנים, יש לך עצמו סטרינג'ן לתשעה באב ולאדר תינגס. איסור מלאכה, for example, כפיית המיטה, עטיפת הראש, certain things that Abel has, even more than תשעה באב. ויש בתילים, וכן דעת אדוני אבי הראש. So the tour says that the father is the Rosh, ultimately was lenient like the middle times retraction. The Siddiqim Nabin, Mawa Demion Metalmud Torah, the Isur Melacha, Shia Asur, Bedevre Torah, Bafilu, Bedvarim Alain, Ima Isur, Talmud Torah, O Kanan, the Pneshim Misameho, Shlema Pekodashim Misarim. מה שאין כאן שאר אצלם גיגון מלאכה, אין טעם מסוים מפני שהם מסמכו. So the rabbi is asking a question in the תוספות. He's saying that in the tour, that the reason why maybe the people are more מחמיר in אבלות when it comes to learning is because we see the מחמיר on other things as well. Just like the מחמיר on מלאכה. מצד הדין. So the rabbi is asking, what's the connection? The reason why Torah is asur is because it's mesameach. Nothing to do with whether melacha is asur or not. Melacha is a different reason. Melacha obviously is not mesameach. So what's the connection? He's saying, just like we're going to be osed melacha by avel, so too we're going to be osed altavre Torah. What's the connection between the two? He says, there is a connection. And then Elomar, שטעם האיסור מלאכה באבל, מוסט מיזם האבל זה אסור במלאכה, כדי שלא יסיח דעתו מאבלותו. זה לא יסיח דעתו מאבלותו. זה אבלות. ודבר זה שיהיה גם בתלמוד תורה, ואפילו בדברים הרעים, שאף שאינם משמחים, אבל מסיחים הם את דעתו מן האבלות. הסנאצה בקדוש. יש שתי טייפים של תורה. יש תורה שמשמחת, ויש תורה שאנחנו נראה. And then you have Devarim Na'im. That Devarim Na'im is not Mesamah, but it's Masiyah. It distracts a person. You're putting your mind on Eov now, and you're learning the book of Eov. Your mind is off to Avinut. So he says, Beze mashin e'eman legabeh ha'isun avel betamudumah ha'anek dom. By Avinut it says the word dom. Shedom mashin legamle. ויש איסור על אבל בכל דברי תורה, אפילו בדברים הרעים. ואתה משום שמסיח דתו על אבלות. מה שאין כאן בתשעה באב, הוא לא אומר את המילה דום, איסורה אינה חמורה כל כך. זה לא כל כך מסוים, כמו שאתם יבמות, שתשעה באב אבלות ישנה, זה עוד אבלות, ואין איסורה אלא שלא להיות בשמחה. שהבאב זה גדר, אין אבלות, אז מה? שאינם בהפן. אבל אין איסור להסיח דתו מן האבלות. But there's no issue to take your mind off the Avinut Shabbat. But there's no issue to Melacha. If you go to work, you might not see Melacha in your work, but you go to work. Mutal nilmod nebadim alayim. Vezei ha-shitat ha-benutam b'ne'aruto. That there's a difference, that the reason why Tesh'a ve'av, or Avinut should be more serious, is because when it says ha-anik dom, dom means on everything, and the real reason is because of Vezei ha-da'at. And just like they don't want you to go to work during Abelut, because of the Seyach Adat, so to learn anything, even the Barim Ra'im. Obeziknuto chazal le'atid the Barim Ra'im ba'abel, v'arim shumahad me'bet ha'ta'amim. Why do you retract? 
Omishum Nisvashah Anikdom, that was written by Avelun, and Ela Mishum Devanim Amisamechit. And he came along and said, no, the real reason is because of Simcha. And therefore, when it said Anikdom, it meant to be quiet from things that will bring you to Simcha. Not because of a Seyadah. That way you can learn Devanim Arayim. Or because he holds, Shebet Tisha'abe'ah ben Avel, Aisut Amutom Mishum Shlemana Anikdom. Metame Seyadah. She's want to say, or the pshat is no. Maybe really there's a problem with sehadat, but reading the barim naim does not bring you to sehadat, because your mind is on unsaid things. So therefore, even if you're only learning iyov, your mind is still on something miserable. So that's considered your mind is still on abelut. What's the Mahlok between Tanakama and the Biyudah and the Mishnah? There we had a Mahloket. Are you allowed to learn on Tisha Be'ab new things that you're not familiar with? you're not familiar with it. So if you go with the Samha reason, so it's not going to be me to Samha, something I'm not familiar with. So why would the reason is because Whether it's something that it's that, that, that it's familiar or not. What do I care if you have The reason according to the Buddha is not Samha. So even if it's bring me it's, it's distracting me. <coughs> so we see two reasons over here why the Torah would be as soon as the Shabbat. Would be as soon as Shum Messiah Hadad or Mishum Subhat. In a Katabatas, Biud Ahed Shitat Abiuda. That says what? The Biuda Shitat was you cannot learn things that you're not familiar with. Oh, so the Simcha, why can't you learn things that you're not familiar with? It's not going to be good to Simcha. So the Taz says, But after you break the Sugya, what happens? So that even on the beginning, it's not going to bring you to Simcha. <coughs> but at the end, when you finally have the Sugya down pat, you're going to have Simcha. And therefore, that's considered a problem. But at the time of your learning, that's the time you do. So that's a new, new way of learning the Mahloket. Because of Simcha, so based on this, we can explain another machlok that we found in the Beit Yosef. Okay, it says you to learn Just Asur. Why? It's very deep book. Fine, that's the opinion of the The Mahalil argues. 
לא ידעתי ממה נסתפק אדוני לבנו פרס נחלק בין הפירוש והקריאה. אתו בשופטני עסקינן, שלא מבינים מה שהם עושים בפיהם? אם משום שיש בו עיון, וכל שכן תעדיף, את העיון, it should be better. תענה במיל מטיל אפילו בה שאינו תוכחה לקלוט ולשנות במקום שאינו להגיד. אל תדבר, אפילו לא לבוקר ביום, it's me more making, because we hold like the מימי that says, you're allowed to know things that you're not familiar with. So what's the problem? The Kaimalai, so he says, ואף אגב, the Kaimalai can be יהודה, you know, we hold like the מיהודה. כל מקום חזינא מנבי מאיר, לכל מה שמסתער ללמדו מתקשט לפי עדיף. אגב, אם יש איזה סמרה, זה סמרה עצמו דיפיקלט ללרן, זה בטח. אתה יודע, ונאללה, יתן לי איוב, זה אוקיי, כמו את אביבאני, זה בכלל לא שמי מותר, תלון איוב, בעיון, כי זה מאוד מאוד דיפיקלט. אבל לפי התז הנ"ל, דברי המעניין צריך עיון, כמו את התז דצד, שאתה הורוויש, בקורס, את האנד יגיד לקום את השמחה. שאלה לדי דקאי מעלה כמטה תם האיסור במקום שאינו להגיל, ואיזו מועץ אסור, זה לקרוס, משום דאף על פי שקשה עכשיו, וכל מקום שמח לך זמן, ואם כן, איך אתה מצטער ללמוד, יש יותר סבלה להחמיר, להחמיר, וואי, the more difficult it is, the more מחמיר we should be, because the happier you are when you crack it. So אדרבה, if איוב is a deep book, That should be, the, the, the Mahdi wants to say, Adaba, if, if it's such a hard book, Adaba, it should be mutar. And he says, according to the Taz, no, the harder the book, the more asuk it's going to bring you to Sibha. Because you crack it. The Kolakum Sameh al-Azimah, the Yimkir, Hekad the Mitzta'ed al-Mod, yesh yotel Sibha al-Nachmir al-Nakir. And the Tirutsu Shemari, no evin shitat li kemo ataz. That's right, obviously the Mahdi does not learn like the Taz. El Lamad Shini, so which asuk, and Kum Shino, what's the reason why it's asuk? To learn things that you're not familiar with, and they say hadat, and no one should see a simcha besom. And we made it a musaf in Eyob that you're not being masiyah dad because it's really an abidut item. After the bayun yeh mutar, mashegir abidut peres lamad shiri or simkom shiru nagim mishum simcha. We made it because the min yeshot esem la nagim kibosh lamad ataz b'shitati. So we want to be toled this machloke of the of the of how to learn the reason based on. And these two reasons, and you can learn the Mahlok and the Mahalil and the, the Binu Peretz uh, on this as well. But there's, a, there's a, a, another question that we have over here that I saw uh, put down uh, in the Sephardim. The question is, let me get it. Yeah, we'll be all in It's a big, big question. Avel asu b'devre Torah. 
חוש ודברים הרעים, מלאכות אבלות. So by אבלות. So what do we say? אבל cannot learn Torah. Except for the bad things. And one can learn הלכות אבלות. האם הוא נשות שמרצה לקלוט בדברים אלו רשאי, או חובה עליו לבוא דברים האלו, שלא יתבטל בדברי תורה? זה ביג חקירה דעכה מהזוביהם. That which you say you can't learn on תשעה באב, או לצאת באבל, is the פשט that really there's no חיוב of תלמוד תורה on תשעה באב. There's no חיוב. If you want to learn, but you can learn. But you don't have a chayuf. This law that we say, wherever spare second you have, that you're able to learn, you should learn. Do we say? That doesn't happen on Avedut. They took away the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. Therefore, there's no such thing in Avedut as bitul Torah. But certain things, if you want to learn, they gave you a heter to learn. But not that you are obligated to learn. Or maybe the other side is, no. You have a chayuv to learn Torah every single day. Even when a person is ba'abedu. And he has a mitzvah of ba'ayla. And therefore he must learn, just like he learns every single day, every spare second he has. But we have to just tell him the curriculum is only limited to chod ba'abedu and other things. But he doesn't have the liberty to be mevatel just like another delivery to me until any day of the year. That's the hakira. Is it a ptur? Or is there still a chayyuv of Talmud Torah during Avinut Shabbat? It's a big, big question. And there's Nafka Minot. That takes a kind of idea page to Tasab. Haritba bechadushav de mo'ed katan. Ahad amrinan avel asub debre Torah. Shine imar. Ha'anek. Dom. God told the Prophet, Yaskel was told that even though he's Abel, he should wear his tefillin, which was an exception. Implying that what everybody else is patul. So therefore, oh, so it says Abel is assumed the Torah. It sounds like the only thing Abel is assumed from this Mishnah that Ashba is asking is Tefillin. It says in Moed Katan, Abel assumed the Bret Torah. Then it says, אמר בי אבא בזבדה, אבל חייב בכל המצוות. אני חושב שאתה אומר, עשו בדברי תורה, חייב בכל המצוות. So he adds, וישוען שאין למדים מן הקללות. אפילו במקום שנאמר בהם חוץ. You can't learn from generalities. When it says, אבל חייב בכל המצוות, זה לאו דווקא בכל המצוות. Even if it says חוץ, you can't learn from it. ואחר פשיט עליהם עשו בדברי תורה, שהם משמחי לב. Sure, he's a super director, which makes him happy. That's the ditma. Odish Tomar, Kiban, Chikore, Kiniachema, Shahid, Barbi, Mahada, Sagile. Right, he says, since you read Kiniachema anyway, 
כי זה יוצא דברי תורה אותה. כדי דבר מנחות. ונמצא שאין הוא פטור מתלמוד תורה עד כאן. קליל. זה לא פטור מדברי תורה. הרי הוא יוצא. How is he יוצא? הוא יוצא שמה. וכאן כתב עוד על אצבע. בחדושיו לכתובות. ובספר ערוך לנר כתב, ופי עניות דעתי, יש לומר, שאין לו אסור אלא בדברי תורה העל משמחים לב, אבל בדברים הרעים ובהלכות אבלות לשיים ללמוד, הוא מקיים בהם את מתלמוד תורה. מכאן, ואני מקיים למדבר. ומדלותי לצד דבר כן, אף לקמן כתב בחדושה לשמה בשם רי, שאבל מותר בדברים הרעים, זאת אומרת, זה מותר, אתה לא יודע דברים רעים, איוב, קינות, עלמא וספירה לב, שאף בדברים אלו פטור, רק מותר ללמוד להם. לשון הדלבאי זה מותר. אבל איפה הוא עושה מותר? איפה שצריך חייב. ורק מותר ללמוד בהם אם ירצה, אבל אין לו חייב, כיוון שאין אדם לומד אלא במקום של דיבור חפץ. ויש לדחות שהנדבר לא מעיין נפשי בפרוטה שיש אוסרים לעבר לגמרי לנקוט וללמוד, כמו שאתה אומר לעולם, תירוץ הראשון של הנדבר שאין נמדים לנקוט אפילו במקום של דיבור בחוץ, לא אתה שפיר על הבד הרשב"א בחרוני, אוקיי? So he's saying the question that ends that the נדבר said. It's difficult because we say a rule that when it says a cloud, like over there it said, Avel patum mikolam mitzvot, we take it seriously. And then we say it's hard to say that we're going to just say that doesn't mean cold. It means there's an exception. He said no, that's not true. So he comes along and he says. Ve'akati lo paltina mipelukta. שהלן בנדרים, כתב, דהד מנהתם דאי באי פתן נפשי בקריאת שמע שערים בערבי, דלנג' אסקינג אנדרטווה. יסדי כפוטר בסוף בקריאת שמע, לאו דווקא, תבאחי מפתר. אינה פטור, שבדעת שערים מחייב אדם ללמוד תמיד יומם ולילה. או סידרן, דלנג סיינג, מה זה פוטר? יחייב תורם די עיניי, כפי כהו, ואמינה, תנו לבנה משנתם לבניך, שיהיו דברים מחוזרים בפיך. קריאת שמע בערבית שערית לא סגי באחי, אלא שבשו"ת הרדב"ז כתב שאין כן דעת כל מפרשים, בספיר הרי שאין אדם חייב בין התורה ללמוד תמיד. וואו, כמו שאתה ברבי אליעזר ממץ, רבנו יונה, כתב על אדבר והראש. הנה התוספות ברחוב כתבו דאיתא בירושלמי, שאף אגב שלא בירך ברכת התורה, אם נפילים מעיק ברכת התורה, יפוטר בברכת אהבת עולם. הוא ששלח על התסורים שלא יצא מבעלי הפטורץ. כלומר, שלמד מיד במקום ההוא. כתב עליו ביוסף, אם תאמר, למה ללא ירושה מדומה שצריך ללמוד מיד, הרי לעולם הוא קורא קריאת שמע מיד. וואי אתה סיימת לדון, יורידים קריאת שמע. הקודם לפעמים זה עושה קריאת שמע, זה עושה like a learning, וואי אתה לומד something after אהבת עולם, after עמידה, for your ברכה תמיכל. וואי אתה לומד שאתה יוצא את קריאת שמע. ויש לומר, זה קריאת שמע ותפילה, לא חשיב לימוד לעניין זה. שדברי תפילה ותחרונים נחוד, ודברי תפילה נחוד. וקריאת שמע זה תפילה. שולחן ערוך שם כתב שיש להסתפק. אם די בקורא קריאת שמע סמוך לערבה, בלא הפסק. 
עד כאן. מרן זנצוס קונבינס, תהיה יוצא בקריאת שמע פרס. אם כן לפי זה, עדיין יש לדון אם הלכה כסורים בקריאת שמע מפתר מבזאת עבוד תורה. מיהו בחדושיה נשמע כתב בשם הרעב"ד, שיש גוסים וירושם יבוא שקרה על עתה. לפי זה כל שקרה קריאת שמע שקרה בערבה, יצא. פיין. וכאילו במעידי. עוד באקם פה. פיין. דני קרלונגר סייז, ותבט עיני להגאון מארי עייש. Now we start את השורה. מארי עייש לא לסיים פגוש שבט יהודה. ממש כתב בשוער ערוך, שהאבל מוטל לקלוט באיוב ובדברים נעים. וואי למרן סי מוטל. ותזכיוב תלרן תורה על תשעה באב, מרן שנסד, אבל חייב לקלוט באיוב. לפקטר יסד מוטל, סאונדס לייק, אם אתה רוצה ללמוד, אתה יכול ללמוד את האיוב, ואתה לא יכול ללמוד. וכתב נראה, זה מוטל ורשאי כאמר. אבל אם אין לו רוצה ללמוד כלל, וגם אם הוא רוצה ללמוד, אפילו בימים הרעים, רשאי. שאין לומר שמכיוון שהוא מותר בהם, חזר הדבר להיות חובה, שכל שזה פרמיסו לזמין את האבלגיישן, ואין הוא רשאי להיות יושב ובטל, לא, דאק את דיבר גדולים בלילה, הלטה, שכיוון שאמרו פטור מתברר תלמוד תורה, משהו פטור לגמרי. ואילו היה חייב בלימוד דברים הרעים, הרי אין לו פטור. מה אגב גם נעשה, פטור from learning to learn, שאמר, אינה פטור. You put them from learning this Torah, but you have to learn other Torah. Vechem mukham v'dyadim y'askela anegdom, v'dom negam y'mashma. Vechem mukham v'mashkadam v'et yosef v'shem anabban, d'lo dami tamut Torah t'finin, sh'asud b'hem nak b'yom rishon. V'shari tamut Torah, d'patan n'avshem k'atshuan sh'ari v'arbit, d'de b'arachim, v'lo ati alem etam sh'ayam l'mod b'arim anaim. Hinam y'mahak t'amay b'ufad v'fta v'kriyat shema patu g'am l'mod b'arim anaim. And therefore he wants to come along and say, That what you see from the fact that it said in the Gemara Patur, and Maran only said Mutar to learn these things, he wants to say no Chayuv. Chamavadiyah says, Bechod Elu Enam Ra'ayot. Da'anan no Chazinan Ka'ayim Neshtad de Patur, Ela Amru Avel Asur B'Devrei Torah. Right, nowhere, he says, there's nowhere it says in Shas, Avel Patur Metamu Torah. All it says is Avel is Asur B'Devrei Torah. Doesn't say Patur. וכל אלו אין להם ראיות, דאנה לא חזינה כאלה שנת הפטור, אלא אמרו אבל אסור בדברי תורה. היי דכתיבה ענק דום, לא מהי בדברים אלה, וסתור בדה בצטאפ, דאים איתה לגמרי משמע, ולאסור מן הדין גם דברים רעים. איפה זה אסור תורה עם תורה לשמיעו של אבריטינג, אלא ודאי דנטע. וגם הראייה מדעת הרמב״ם לא מכרה שישומה דלא מעיין נפשי בפקודת שאומה בתורת האדם, אם אבל מותר באיוב עונת. אבולי דרום מרן, ואלי מרן סי מותר, מרן שנסד חייב, according to these different opinions, is a person going to be allowed to, let's say, watch a Holocaust movie on uh, Tisha B'Av? If you hold that you have an obligation to study Torah, so what are you wasting your time? You can't be wasting your time watching a Holocaust movie, watching all this other stuff. It's Batel, you have to learn, what are you watching movies for? But if you hold that really a patu from Tabu Torah, 
and you only have a tent to learn the other stuff if you want to. So then already you can uh, that's that tent to start watching movies and all and all this other stuff over here. He quotes from Rav Tayyib, Erech Hashulchan, Shemida Halachah, the Rav Shemit Yehuda, the Gemet Shabbat. The Mashavu Shekurei Beiyov. If you don't want to learn the Klal Rashi, it's like Tayyib. If you don't want to learn the Shabbat at all, you don't have to learn. But do Amnina Shekivat Shemutaru. Uh, but then he said, is that really where we're so sad that the ladies are ready on the Torah on these days? But now you want to add the men also? Chaim holds, even on Chabeah, you can't be Batel for a second. You have stuff to learn. Learn the Midrashim, learn Moed Katan, Echa, Iyob, he says, I, I'm an artist. Let me go to the class. The rabbi's giving me a class. Let me Musa. So therefore, the high project clearly argues. And he says, What? There's a Hayyub to learn. Right? If there was no Hayyub to learn Torah, then why would you make me cut the Torah? That's the question. No Bitsibanu today. You want to learn the Eyob? Good luck. I'm getting but So how can you say in the morning we see Banu on the Maybe that's the cover Oh, that's just to cover maybe Kirat Shema and things, if you hope. Hello, Petunim. I feel that they've been utam. The Sviddish Shinashim, the Shimna Berecha, the Sotah Shizman Yerama. Ah, so you're going to come along and say, oh, maybe now we can make a Beracha on things, even though you're Patur. Right, the ladies make a Beracha on Lulav, because they've been utam. That's only because the men are Hayabin. They don't make a Beracha on Sunday, everybody's Patur. So then he comes along and says, your answer, And then anyway, we can say it's no proof because you have to learn what's at the Shabbat. And what's at the Shabbat, we know the Beracha is goes from the morning to morning. So therefore, anyway, you have to learn. So you can know the Ayah, just because we're making the Beracha, there's no Ayah. Sof Dabar, and Achamunya's ruling is, Hakol Neshma, Sha'avel Hayel Hayab, the Lord with Varim Araim, Kishayana Menachamim Eslo. So he holds that Avel, when the people are not consoling him, he's got to have his head in the book. He holds that there's no such thing as a Ptur from Tamil Torah, 
He argues on Rabbi Ayash and Matei Yehuda and the same thing on the Shabbat. He holds that there's a hayyub of learning Torah and Shabbat just as much as any other day. It's just that the curriculum is, uh, is limited. So that's not the opinion of, of everybody else. No. He has a question over here. What's his reason over here? So he says over here, because Musad breaks the person's heart. There's no it's Maran's opinion, because what is Maran writing in Tapkuf Nundalen? Asun leklot Torah nebi'im ketuvim. Ushonot b'mishnah b'medrash v'gimra b'alachot. Usi'if bet Maran writes, u'mutal l'lmod b'medrash echa. What is it mutal? Maran should say, hayab l'lmod. It's got to be mutal, if you want, you can learn. Ma'alken, l'lmod sh'im kashel l'lmod ma'amad ta'anit, that's it's hard to learn. Everybody can learn. he says, "Vadai leben Torah lemod elchot abedut berambam shalaru." So I come with Zion and tell them, "Argues that the Chavu Badiyah." 
don't have a big machloket over here. Kabbetzion really learns. There's no chayyub of learning on the Shabbat. And after the kinot, uh, you know, you don't have to push yourself. You don't go to sleep. So well, yeah, holds no. There's a chayyub to that three hundred twelve days a year. There's no day that you put the mot Torah. That's why you're saying Hashem the Shemtos for all the bet Torah. So he brings that over here. I saw this whole uh, discussion. No, no, whatever, whatever, whatever the, whatever the Hachamim told you to learn, and that's a Hayyub to learn. Exactly. So he brings that over here, Chabin Sion. So they call it Kliyakar. Vayistom Esav et Yaakov ala Berakha asher Berakho Abi v'yom en Esav v'libor. When Esav was angry that his brother took the blessing, the Pasuk says, Yikrebu yeme'ebel abi. He said, let me, let me wait till my father dies. And then I'll kill, I'll kill my brother. So he says, why was Esav anticipating the mourning period of his father? If he was waiting until he typed the mice to kill Yaakov, then let the Pasuk say, let the passing of my father come. Once his father could no longer be able to witness Esau, wicked actions, why did he say he could even be Just say, let my father die. If, if, if the whole thing of Esau was that he didn't want, it's hard to see what he's going to do. So he should say, let my father's death come imminent. And he won't see what I'm doing. But why did he say, Why is he focusing on the Avelut? Kliyakar explains that since an Avel is not permitted to learn Torah, while Yaakov was in Avelut for his father, he would not be able to learn. It's Haka told Esav that, what? so long as Yaakov is learning, you have no touch on him, you have no hold on him. But once he stops learning, so you'll be able to Get it. So Esav was waiting for the Avelut period, so Yaakov won't be learning Torah, and now Yaakov Avinu will have, you know, a weakness, and Esav will be able to. Esav was waiting for Yaakov to be in Avel, because his inability to learn Torah would allow Esav to be triumphant. Now he becomes vulnerable. This adds the Kliyaka, why an Avel requires a Shomer, because he doesn't have Torah to protect him. Avel is a Shomer because she doesn't have the Torah. So he says, wait. If an Avel is obligated to learn the Barim Na'im, what's the case of Esav? If you say that, you still have to learn, okay, you might not be able to learn Mishnah uh, Ketubot, but learn the Barim Na'im. So Adraba, Yaakov could still learn Torah, and he still has an obligation to learn the Barim Na'im, and therefore what does Esav have on him? From here it sounds like so the fact that Esav said and the clear card is saying that he won't be able to learn Torah and Sadaqah doesn't have a at all must therefore conclude that clear card maintains that an Abel is not obligated to learn Torah Esav was waiting the time when Yaakov we no longer have a to learn Torah and therefore would be left without any protection so therefore he wants to learn from there based on the clear card no Hayyuf but there's a question he says 
If an Abel is permitted to learn parts of Masechet Gitin, a Mo'ed Katan, Echa, Yirmiyah, then why would he not be obligated to learn them? Which is asking a question on, 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 on himself. Once a part of Torah is permissible to the Avel, and Chayuv should return, and should be obligated to learn these parts. If a person takes a vow not to receive any Hana'ah benefit from another individual, he still may utilize the person's Shofar, Tzitzit, Lulav, because we know the law that says Mitzvot, the mitzvot were not given for uh, enjoyment. Learning Torah, however, is different. However, Torah learning does provide a person with tangible joy. And one who engages in Torah study without enjoying it is not fulfilling the mitzvah. This is why Chazal teaches, You have to learn what talks to you. Because one of the key roles in learning Torah is to enjoy it. What does Ba'arevna mean? To be sweet. Which means learning Torah is not simply an intellectual pursuit, the spiritual delight. Hazal restrict our choices when we're able to study, inherently negating the premise of Talmud Torah, since true simcha from learning will not be possible in the setting. Wow, it's interesting. The reason why they will portray you from learning Torah to Shabbat because you won't be able to learn Torah with simcha. Won't be able to get to the real level of learning that's supposed to give you hana'ah. Legislating what can and cannot be learned uproots the Hayyuf Talmud Torah since it's antithetical to what Torah study is intended to do. Therefore, once there are limitations placed on what is permissible to learn, there can no be long there can no there can no longer be an obligation to learn. That's interesting. Now once already you're limiting the, 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 the content. But I don't want to learn this stuff. I don't want to learn Eov. I want to learn uh, the Daf. I want to learn things like that. Once you tell me you can only learn this miserable stuff, well, I'm not happy to learn these things over there. So automatically, you, you see that you're taking away the Hayyub of learning. If you, didn't, if you weren't told that you have to learn Eov today, you'd open up something else. You'd open up a Musarabah. You'd open up Shohadaruch. You'd open up something else. Nobody would choose to learn the Barim Naim Shibir Miyah. Nobody tuned to learn the miserable Pesukim and Echa Be'ayun. So automatically, basically you tell me, learn without any pleasure. Okay, so, that, so, so that means that there's no mitzvah of learning anymore. Because the whole mitzvah of learning is the pleasure. So therefore, comes out, we have a fantastic mahloke between Acham ben Siyon and how we're supposed to look at this inyan of the learning. And it comes out that we have a two different understandings of what, what's the reason for it. Either it's because it's going to bring us to simcha, or it's because it's a diversion. And that will depend on how to learn the two opinions of the Mishnah, like Rabbi Kalashki brought down in the, in, the, in the first piece. Okay, now he gets to a piece. Yeah. There's no machloka on what you can do. Right. In the Mishnah, there is a but the Ma'aseh, we come out, we know exactly what I'm all those things that we said. Now he has a piece over here on. Katab al Ambam. Mitzvah al-Aseh min al-Tonah liz'ok ula'ariyah ba'asusilot al-Kotzalat shetabur al-Sibur. Anytime there's salot on the Sibur, the Ambam says, Mitzvah to take out the Shofarot and blow them. 
הקצץ על הצער הצולל אתכם והרעותם והסוסנות. ודבר זה מדרכי התשובה. זאת אומרת תשובה שבזמן שתבוא צרה ויזעקו עליה ויריעו ידעו הכל שבגלל מעשיהם הנאים ופיפול אמריקנזיס בקוסט אוף דה בד דידס that this happened to them וזהו שיגרום להציל הצרה ומונס דה אמריקנזיס עוונות and they start to make the שובה that's a cause for the צרה to leave them אבל אם לא יזעקו זה רק להשקיעים when the trouble comes ולא יריעו אלא יאמרו we're going to say דבר זה ממנהג העולם וכאילו פיפול say Listen, the community is getting bigger. There's going to be more accidents. It's just uh, it's numbers. More people, more trouble. More people, more divorces. More people, more uh, miscarriages. More people, more... Uh, you know, nothing to do. If you look at the ratio, it's probably the same as it was in 1962. And just that it's happening uh, more often because... So he says, And anybody that says, It's just, you know, chance or statistical. And it's a direct accident. That's considered a cruel person. Because a, what Abba is telling you, there's a way to get rid of it, and you're not getting rid of it. Basically, you're telling the people, don't make the shuvah. Statistics. More people are going to get sick because of that. So, why should the people make the shuvah? No, you're not telling them to make the shuvah. And then what's going to end up happening? More troubles. <laughs> exactly. So, Abba says, V'tosif ha-tzara, tzarot o-harot. Hu shikatu ba-tura ba-alachtem imi be-keri. Keri means be-mikre. Meaning, you're going to go with me in happenstance. God says, I will remove my divine providence on you, and things are going to happen. You're going to have one or seven times. Yes, Lavin. Why is someone who says that the prophet is Akhzar? So they're asking on the Rambam's Lashon. You call him an Akhzar. He's worse than an Akhzar. Akhzar sounds like a mean guy. He's a mean guy. He's worse than a mean guy. He's a prophet. He's basically saying what's happening in the world is happenstance. That's a kofer. Babiuru, dirachinami. The badai koferu. That's for sure. Abal, nikla achzar, because the Rambam writes after, shim yomru davazim mikreh, what ends up happening? He causes the people to become cooled off, not to make teshuvah. Hu osip alechem od sarot. He calls God to make more troubles. Adatim shiva pa'amim. ושמחי נכלא אכזר, שאין לו רחמנות על עצמו, שעל ידי סתימות ליבו גורם עוד צרות שתבוא עליו. איזה אכזר, נא לא אומרים על עוד הזמן, איזה אכזר על המסלף. זה קסורסיידו. היובר השם אל משה, הנה שוכב עם אבותיך, זה פסוק כזה תוכחה. קלט תביאי דיס פסוקים. משה רבינו מסתור בגלל שאתה וכמה העם הזה, the nation is going to rise up after you. וזנה אחרי אלוהי נכר הארץ, ואני רואה איפה תעמודה זנה. ועזבני, אני גונה ליבי. והפר את בניתי אשר קראתי איתו, אני גונה ברייק מי קאמרן. וחלה אפי בו ביום ההוא. אני אגריב אתם. ועזבתי, וסתרתי פניי מהם, אני רואה את מי פרוונס. והיה לאכול, אני רואה את מי דבארות. ומסעוהו רעות רבות וצרות. אני רואה את הפיים, לאט אוף צרות, לאט אוף טראבלס. ואמר ביום ההוא, אני גונה סיין לידי. Because God is not with me. I'm going to conceal myself. Because 
The pasuk sounds strange. It says, and the people are going to come along and say, you know what is happening? Because Hashem is not with us. Okay, that means they believe in Hashkaft Hashem. So why did it say that right after that? Because, oh, that's what you're saying? I'm going to conceal myself. Why That should be a reason for, 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 for the providence to come back. When they say, because God is not in my midst, they're not saying it in an understanding that there's Hashem. That's, that's the way the Torah is saying, meaning, which means it's saying, there's no God. Exactly, there's no God. Exactly. This is not from God. We always understood that means because Hashem, who runs the whole world, is angry at us and left us. No. What they're going to say is, God, the reason why these things are happening, like somebody wrote a book on the Holocaust, why do bad things happen to good people? And he came along and said, because God is not here. So, and therefore the world is being run just... Uh, and randomness, so when, 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 when you have randomness without, without, uh, without, uh, without somebody running it, you know, it's the roll of the dice. Sometimes good things happen to good people, sometimes bad things happen to bad people. And therefore he said, I don't know, that's a proof that there's no, that was, he wrote, he wrote a book, that was, that was, that was, that was a, a reform rabbi. That was his uh, um, conclusion. The reason why the Holocaust happened is because Hashem, Kien, and Rabbi be. Wow. Terrible conclusion, but that—that's that, what they're, they're going to say. To not predict that people are going to say that, not the shot that God was angry and therefore, no, it is happening. It's like, 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 like the governor of New York says, "It's not from God. It's not from God. We, we did it. We did it. God has nothing to do with this over here." And look what happened to him at the end. He says over here, Ah, you're going to come along and say that I'm not there? Now, guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to fulfill it. I won't be there. I'm going to go hide myself, and therefore you either are not going to see me. This is the reason why we have to fast on Hurban Abay. All the troubles that we've experienced for the past 1954 years, all stem from the Hurban Abay. All the tzarot is going to bring us to teshuvah. The first ones, where they saw the sins, they recognized and they made the shiva, so the, state, the, the galut was limited, 70 years. But the second one, lo which means it's still, still open-ended, so therefore the the, the Galut is open-ended. Shalut Rabbi El-Azhar. Eze dor ayu gidolim yoter? Dor bayit ishon or dor bayit sheni? Amar lehem, tenu enechem. He says, go look. Go look at what? 
בבירה, בבית המקדש, שחזן לראשונים ולא לאחרונים. Came back to the first ones, ועל כן ראשונים גדולים בתור בית שני. ובאמת הגרא, הטעם ששנאת חינם גרוע יותר מגמל החברות. Why is שנאת חינם worse? מפני שאין אדם מכיר שחטא מה שחטא, אבל כמה שנאת חינם היא לא תרצה סין, ואינו חושב שעשה שום חטא. זה פרופורס לא כדי למקד תשובה. כיוון שלדעתו לא חטא, גילוי עלי תשכות דמים מזה. בלייטנסס. Person knows that this is. Arambam writes, Sheyeshkav dalet devarim ha'makimim et teshuvah. And there's five things Sheyoseh otam en haskato lashuv. Mepele shehem nefi shem devarim kalim v'enerov adam v'nafsah hotem u'yidmeh she'en zechet. Arambam writes that the worst sins are the small sins that people don't recognize if they're not going to make teshuvah. Bezeu ha'atam sh'ma'chalonim sh'lonet galah avonam it wasn't revealed to them. They didn't think he was doing something so bad. It was not revealed to them. To know what sins caused the Don't be an akzab. And don't come along and say, oh, anti-Semitism, uh, you know what, uh, politics, the economy. You know. It's not giving these excuses to take it away from, from our responsibility. There's one more, one more piece over here that I saw brought down in the Sephardim over here, which is Kedai, to read over here regarding the, uh, the Holocaust, which is something that we talk about uh, during these days over here. This is the day that we remember these days as well. April 19th, 1943. Only three Rabbanim remained in the Warsaw Ghetto. Three Geone Olam. Menachem Zemba and Rav David Kahana Shapiro. These three Rabbanim found themselves facing one of the most frightful dilemmas in recent Jewish history. And there are only one hour in which to render their decision. They had received word from the Judenrat regarding a message from the Catholic Church of Warsaw. They were informed that if they would agree to leave the ghetto within the next 24 hours, their lives would be spared. The church would save them. They had 60 minutes to decide. No language had been created that could adequately depict the deplorable conditions, living conditions in the ghetto. And these streets of Dikim had been given the opportunity to escape. Terror and horror gripped the inhabitants of the ghetto. The awful conditions were coupled with the fear that anyone was liable to be grabbed and taken away at any time. To make matters worse, <clears throat> if they were even possible, the next day, April 20th, was the Fuhrer's birthday. Chief Executioner Himmler decided that in honor of the birthday, he would murder all the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. People continually streamed into Rabbi Nachim Zemba's home with problems pressing on their hearts. Rabbi Nachim Zemba was a world-renowned Tamid Hacham, Poseik, and master of Hasidut. Rabbi Nachim Zemba was held in the highest esteem in Torah world. He had been offered the prestigious position of Chief Rabbi of Jerusalem, which he had declined. 
upon the untimely passing of Amaya Shapiro, he was offered the position of Rav of Lublin, and Rosh Hashivah Mishivat Hachmei Lublin, which he also turned down. Before his 30th birthday, he served as the honorary secretary of the Mo'etzin Gedolea Torah. He authored more than 10,000 pages of Hadushet Torah. He authored an, uh, uh, an, uh, an, uh, a commentary, including Mahazea Melech, which was a commentary on the entire Rambam. And on the entire Yerushalmi called Menachem Yerushalayim. And hundreds of responses and original Hadushim and Tamud Babish, Shohanaruk and Midrash. Tragic scenarios played out in Rabbechem Zembe's ghetto home. Couples were coming to be divorced. In some instances, the husbands were seeking to escape the ghetto, but the wife was afraid to accompany him, since she had a typical Jewish face. That would result in them both being caught. Others described aging parents, whom one spouse could not leave behind, was too frail to flee, but they wanted their spouses to escape. In these and similar cases, the couples opted against their will to divorce, to allow one of them to flee without concerns of she'elot of agunot. Rabbi Nachem arranged these gitin, weeping along the couples as he did so. Such was the atmosphere of sheer dread and horror. And these three, the banim, had a mere hour to decide if they wanted to save their own lives or they should remain with their brethren in the ghetto. Come what may, if they were to escape, what would happen to the morale of the Jews they left behind? They convened the Bedin to adjudicate what was the most, what was most certainly Dinin Fashut. As such, the rule of Putrim Bekatam was invoked. And the first to offer his opinion was the youngest amongst them, Rav David Shapiro. From the depths of his soul, he declared that he knew he was the youngest amongst them and that his words were in no way binding for the others to follow. However, he implored them to stay in the ghetto and not run away. There most assuredly was not much that they could do to save the people who were in the ghetto, but by not abandoning them in their darkest hour, the Rabbanim could encourage them and strengthen their hope. He told the others that he simply did not have the strength to abandon these unfortunate souls. Will we hide from the Almighty? The same God who is found here is also found wherever we may run. After he spoke, Rav Shemesh and Stachim and Rav Nachim Zemba did not even comment. There was nothing left to say. Rav Nachim Zemba declared that there would be no further discussion about this issue. They informed the Judenrat on their decision to remain rather than take advantage of the offer for salvation. If it is the will of Hashem, we will die along with the Jews of Warsaw. In 1941, the Jews of Panovich Lita were herded into the nearby Pajansli forest and murdered in mass. <coughs> Their rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Shalom, Shlomo Kahanaman, survived because he was in Palestine at the time, en route to the United States on a fundraising trip. His wife, Reverend Fagan, was killed, as were, all but, as were all but one of his children. At the Hakamat Matzimah for the Panavish Yeshiva, Rav Shmuel Rozovsky addressed the assembled crowd. Rav Kahanaman's soul, he said, found no rest. He was frequently disturbed by the idea that he had been saved, but that others on his ship had drowned. 
Rav Kahaneman had testified that he was the sole surviving Lithuanian Rav. His tremendous efforts to build Turan Eretz Yisrael as well as to build the Paramit Yeshiva were all focused on making the most of him having survived. Of openingly demonstrating that he was not a captain who had abandoned ship of the fateful moment. The young Rav Shmuel Shlomo Lehner, the Skian of the Rajina Hasidic dynasty, was offered safe passage to Warsaw, but he displayed extraordinary courage and remained in Waldorf, Poland, to help his fellow Jews. The Gestapo felt that he raised the morale and lifted the spirits of the Jews there, and they therefore demanded that he surrender or they would slaughter the inhabitants of the ghetto. Ravlina calmly said goodbye to his wife and walked out to the enemy. He was subsequently brutally beaten and gassed in Sobibor in May 1942. The Boyana Rebbe of Krakow, the president of Yeshiva Ahmed Lublin, received a South American passport. He refused to use it, remaining in the Tarnow ghetto in southern Poland. By September 1943, the 62-year-old Rebbe perished with his Hasidi. An entire ghetto was declared Judenland. A rabbi in Croatia, Rav Charles Steckel, chief rabbi of Ozesk, Slavankia, received a two-word message from the town's retired chief rabbi, Dr. Simon Unger. Berach lecha, flee at once. Rav Steckel urged the Croatian Jews to flee to Italy or Hungary. December 1940 was offered two opportunities to escape, and he turned them both down. He wrote, it is my moral duty to be with my congregation. Rabbi Ricardo Pasifi was the chief rabbi of Genoa, Italy. He too declined the opportunity to flee the city. He was subsequently gassed in Auschwitz in December 1943. Kihilot were not always so kind to the Banim, who forsook them and their, at their time of Tsar. During the Holocaust, the chief rabbi of Rome was given safe haven by the church. He took advantage of this opportunity and survived the war. When he returned to Rome after the war seeking reinstatement to his post as chief rabbi, the Kehillah refused. They felt that he had abandoned them in their time of need, and they would not allow him to serve them in his clerical capacity. Shamefully, the former chief rabbi eventually converted to Catholicism. In an interesting twist of fate, in more recent times, his grandfather, became, his granddaughter became a giyoret, and she lived her life as a shomir Torah mitzvot. The rabbi of Eisenstadt, the Rav of Eisenstadt, Lithuania, Rav Shimon Razovsky, had family visiting from Palestine in 1939. His son Uri and daughter-in-law, Fania, implored him to return home with them. He had done so. Had he done so, he would have likely been spared the horrors of the Holocaust. He refused their invitation, explaining, a shepherd must remain with his flock. They need me more than ever. A number of Gedolim demonstrated almost supernatural loyalty to the Kehilot. In the spring of 1939, five months before World War II, began Rav Hanan Masim was on a fundraising trip in America. The administration of Yeshiva Torvadat urged him to remain in America rather than return to Baranovich. Shlomo Hyman even offered to step aside and allow Rav Hanan to assume the role of Yeshiva. Gedalia Shore set about procuring visas for Rechelen's Talmidim to join him in the United States. However, Rechelen insisted on going back, stating, how can I abandon my family and my 400 other children, his students? As he journeyed back to Baranovich, he had a stopover in London. Once again, Rechelen rejected the pleas of local supporters who implored him to remain in England. Rechelen responded, a captain does not abandon the ship. 
As painful as the next anecdote is to relate, I am proud to report a similar story of the Sukkot Shavarav. That Gudai Yisrael offered him a very prestigious rabbinic position as chief rabbi of America. He turned it down, opting to remain a faithful shepherd to his He died at Kiddush Hashem in the Warsaw Ghetto. So this is the uh, this is the question that they have in Halakha now. Were these rabbis permissible or were they obligated to do what they did? In 1809, the Hatam Sofer recorded 60 years previously that in 1749, the city of Prague was under siege. The Rodabi Yehuda himself felt that he should escape to save his life. While the Jewish leaders in Prague did not allow him to do so. He wanted to leave and they didn't let him go. <laughs> the Hatam Sofer writes that the position of the Rodabi Yehuda was completely and fully understandable. A person is not authorized to remain in Makom Sakana, in a danger zone. Even Sadiqim may not remain in dangerous predicaments since their survival may very well diminish their zikhutim. But the leaders of Prague for themselves almost selflessly demanded that the Rodabi Yudah remain with them. They wanted his presence to serve as a zikhut for their protection. They felt that a leader must act solely for the people rather than focus on or place any importance on his own personal survival. The Atam Sofer adds that there are many who clearly disagreed with the position of the Rodabi Yudah. On the other hand, the Atam Sofer writes, many Torah luminaries agreed when the city of Mainz was besieged, they dispatched their illustrious sage, Rav Chaim Hirsch, to Frankfurt, sending him to safety. The community of Koblenz similarly sent away their beloved Rav Ziskin Grundrish to remove him from harm's way. Atam Sofer's own Rebbe, Dafla'a, was sent from them from Frankfurt, was under attack. He sought refuge in Hanau. Atam Sofer writes that when a community is dealing with external forces that threaten its survival, it is completely reasonably for them to remove their wealth from any danger, thereby freeing themselves by additional concern for the safety of their leader. Once the Rav is safe, he can then turn his attention to praying and beseeching Hashem on behalf of his community, without the need to focus on his own safety. There would be no benefit to keeping the Rav local, potentially causing him harm as well. In fact, the tzaddik's galut may actually prove to be very beneficial to the members of the tzibur. Since we are taught that when a tzaddik is displaced, there's a singular for protection. The idea is alluded to by Ibn Sawa Aaron. What does it mean? Ibn Sawa Aaron, when the Aaron travels, when the Tamil Acham is displaced, it is a singular what? Those who hate you will flee. The Atam Sofer refers to these findings as evidence of a fundamental disagreement that existed between the Kehilak and Rosh Prague and that of the other communities who opted to send their up to safety. The Hazun Ish left pre-war Europe in 1933 and he survived the Holocaust. During the war he was asked by other Gedolim if they should remain with the Kehilak, if they should flee to safety. Hazonish would avoid directly answering the question. Rather, he would direct the question to the words of the Atam Sofer. 
The Atam Zubin does not issue a definitive ruling on this complex issue, indicating that the decision must be made on a case-by-case basis. Each circumstance requires a careful analysis. The Atam Sofed applies the aforementioned disagreement between the community of Prague and Frankfurt. Prague held their rabbi, and Frankfurt sent their rabbi. The amazing Hadush Atam Sofed says now, he said this was actually the Mahloket that took place in the Hurban by Echeni, between the people. Yerushami teaches us that at the time of destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash, the walls of Jerusalem were breached on the 17th of Tammuz. Although the Pasu says they actually took place on the 9th of Tammuz, the Gemara says, There was a confusion of the dates. Really, the wall was breached on the 17th, and Tosfot said that the Nabi kept the wrong date, just to show how confused they were. Why was there so much more confusion at the time of the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash than at the time of the Hurban Bayit Sheni? Why was there more uncertainty regarding the dates of the Hurban Bayit Nishon? Why did they have more clarity of thought and better ability of accuracy recollecting the second Bet HaMikdash? Tamsul points out, at the time of Hurban Bayit Sheni, the Maniga Dor was the generation of Yohanan ben Zakai. He was the one who established the days of fasting. He was also of the opinion that if a tzaddik could escape in order to save his life, he is obligated to do so. The Yohanan ben Zakai fled Jerusalem, if you remember, prior to the walls being breached. He was therefore in a less tumultuous situation at the time that the events unfolded, and he was able to record the correct dates because he wasn't, he wasn't with them. He knew precisely when the various events transpired, and he was able to record them accurately. Not being present in Jerusalem afforded him the presence of mind, the peace of mind of doing so. At the time of the first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, Yirmiya Nabi was the Manhigador. He was incarcerated in prison and did not emerge until the siege of Jerusalem was underway. Yirmiya, however, experienced the turmoil of the times. Thus, some of the dates were recorded incorrectly. Thus says the Atab Sofed, this dilemma in ancient is, in, in, is ancient in origin. Taking it even further, this dilemma is actually a mahlukah as early as two midrashim. The Gemara relates that Abhiyabar Abba was weak and Abhiyohanan paid him a visit. Abhiyohanan comment, commented that Abhiyah should be content since he is suffering was sure to bring him a great reward. And the rabbi said, no hen no sekharan. I don't want the Yisurin and I don't want the reward. Rabbi Hanan took Rabbi Hiyah's hand and lifted him up. Rabbi Hanan was subsequently bedridden with an illness. And he was visited by Rabbi Hanan. What ensued was a similar conversation with Rabbi Hanan eventually grasping Rabbi Hanan's hand and providing him miraculous cure. The Gemara then wonders, if Rabbi Hanan was able to miraculously heal Rabbi Hiyah, why couldn't he provide the same healing for himself? If he could bring the Abhiyaz Yisurin to a halt, why could he not do the same for his own suffering? The Gemara's explanation for the anomaly is that a captive is incapable of releasing himself from captivity. Atam Sufid employs this Gemara to support the position that when a community is suffering and may even be on the brink of being massacred, the people must find a way to send their rav to safety. This is because if the Rav finds himself in the same challenging and life-threatening situation as the rest of the community, then the Midat Tadim will apply to him as well. And he's in Beta Asurim. His Tefilot will not be as effective 
As the Gemara says, when he was in captivity himself, is not able to facilitate his own release. A Rav who has escaped, however, is capable of effecting salvation for the community, since he himself is not in the same situation. This is similar to how Rabbi Yohanan could have saved Rabbi Chiyah, but not himself. This would support the opinion of the community in Frankfurt. The Hatam Sofit presents support for the opposing view as well, which is the people of Prague that did not want to let the Hati Yodav Yodav go. After being banished from the home of Abraham Abinu, Ishmael was lying in the desert, dying of thirst. Ishmael prayed to Hashem as did his mother. But Ishmael, we met and he told Hagar, don't worry, Shema Hashem met Hashem. she quoting Midrash points out that although Hagar also prayed, Hashem paid heed to the prayers of Ishmael. Because the prayer of a sick person on his own behalf is more effective. This seems to support the practice of not sending away the Rav, but rather to include him in the suffering of, his, of the community, because his cries for assistance and salvation are then firsthand, which is more effective, as Ishmael. In the words of the Atam Sofer, the im ki. Mike says, the im ki lachriya in any kedai. At the end of the Teshuvah, he says, there's proofs both ways. Is it better to keep the rabbi in the town or better to let him go? However, says the Atam, says, I can't answer the question. <laughs> However, says the Atam Sofer, while we may not be able to offer a lachic ruling on this issue, we do have to reconcile the Gemara and the Midrash. On one hand, the Gemara teaches us, and Hamush Matir Atzimah Bet Asurim. But Yishmael, who was the Hamush, was able to pray, and he was able to get answers. But he's the Hamush. How do you reconcile? How can the prayers of the person who was suffering be more effective than those of others if his being ill places him in the proverbial beta asurim? Tamsir points out a single distinction between these two statements. Understanding this difference will allow us to understand why Rabbi Hanan could not excrete himself from the situation of Yisurim where Yishmael was. When one receives a decree from heaven, he should be ill. How can other people pray to terminate that gezerah? It's not a question, a philosophical question. I get sick. How, how does someone praying to get the gezerah away? Hashem issued a ruling that a person must experience illness. So why should someone else's prayer be effective? Hashem does not accept bribery. So why should someone's tefillot or doing mitzvot on behalf of someone else be helpful at all? Atam Sufet explains that all of Klai Israel is one entity. Therefore, each and every one of us has the ability to truly feel and experience the pain of a fellow Jew. Praying for someone else's illness to be cured is really praying for one's own recovery. Since his pain is your pain, his illness is your illness. Just as my mouth can pray for my toe to feel better, as they are part of my goof, the same body, so too my mouth can pray for your toe to heal since we are all one extended yet singular entity. However, this is effective only if the mitpaleel truly feels the pain of his friend. Yemana tells us that for one to pray for his friend's recovery requires him to experience the illness personally. Once you feel the pain and it's your own, then you can pray. Therefore, Satan Sufin, a leader, Tzaddik, Tamin Akram, can effectively pray for the members of his community. As a Jew, he feels the pain of others. And as if you know it, exert terrific influence in Shamayim, and they potentially could terminate the Gezerah. 
However, his tefillah would be more powerful if he were not personally in the same predicament as those he is praying for. Best would be to be removed from his personal captivity, as we said earlier, a captive cannot extricate himself. In contrast, what we see in the episode of Yishma'el in the desert was different. For a non-Jew, the most and in fact the only effective prayer comes from the patient himself. Non-Jews are not considered a single entity and therefore do not experience each other's pain and discomfort in the same manner. Thus, their prayers are not effective when they are directed for someone else's benefit. When the person experiences the pain and cries out to Hashem, his prayers have the best chance to be answered. Interesting answer. The Jew and the Goy. The Jew who feels the pain of others, so it's my pain, I can pray. Hashem and the Goy who doesn't feel the pain of others, like Hagar, you know, it's the mother. That's not for me as effective as Ishmael himself. The position of the Atamsavit seems to support the position held by Frankfurt. Frankfurt sent out the rabbi. And the Rudabi Yuda. It is best to send the rub to safety where he can pray for the survival of his community, unhindered by worries about his personal safety. However, as we mentioned, many Gidulim held otherwise, stating that the captain cannot abandon the ship in time of a distress. This was the position of the Shimshon Stockheimer. Menachem Zemba, Rav David Shapiro, Rzon, who told me about the terrible predicament that faced these three Sadiqim, as well as their decision to remain. Although this is a point of considerable contention, it is recorded that Rav Menachem Zemba told the people in the ghetto, and for this reason it appears to me that according to the Halakha, it would be a mitzvah to revolt. He was part of the the uprising. This would be a Kiddush Hashem in doing so. And this would be considered a Menchemet Mitzvah. He was uniquely suited for the test because Rabbanachim Zemba was purported to have advised the inhabitants of the ghetto, I speak to you from the very depths of my conscience. I warn you, there's only one way out for us, to revolt, to resist. Every able-bodied man must revolt and resist. Shlomo Alina Abradzin instructed his Hasidim to rebel and join forces, forces with the partisans in the forest. He declared a ta'anit in Lublin and organized the rebellion. When the Nazis learned of these plans, they presented an ultimatum. Either the Rebbe surrendered to us or the entire town would be wiped out. Without informing the Rebbe of his, this ultimatum, his gabai, dressed as the Rebbe, and presented himself to the Nazis. He was immediately killed. The Nazis subsequently learned the truth. And then, the Rebbe had no choice but to surrender to the Nazis. He gave up his life on Kiddush Hashem, but not before becoming severely beaten and tortured. He remained defiant until the end. And in his last breath he cried, Revolt! Never surrender to evil! Shema Yisrael! There was a Rebbe in Warsaw Ghetto who actively participated in the uprising. Rav Zemelman, the rabbi of Peshatz, he sneaked out of the ghetto into the Aryan part of the city, posing as a non-Jew. He obtained weapons that he smuggled into the ghetto. He urged the youth to utilize the weapons and revolt against the Nazis. He urged Maizel, author of She'elot Uchuot, Mekdashi Hashem, also supported the uprising. The Warsaw Jews carried out their uprising, fighting for six weeks in a holdout, without parallel in history. Never in the sad and holy annals of Jewish will to survive for its faith was more desperately glorious standing, uh, not, 
a more desperately glorious stand been made than by those heroes who acted not only to try to save their own lives, but to save the dignity of the entire Jewish people. After declining to be rescued, Shimshin Stockheimer was utterly taken from the ghetto to a labor camp near Lublin, after having lost his entire family in the death camps. With tremendous misnomers together with others, he managed to bake matzot in the labor camp. He transported the matzot under his clothing, accompanied by a physician friend. They were caught, and they both received dreadful beatings. Twelve months later, in 1945, Shimshin Stockheimer was taken to another camp in southern Germany. Pesach was approaching. Stockheimer let it be known he would not eat hametz for the duration of the holiday. This was tantamount to committing to fasting for an entire week. He was very weak and ill at the time, and those with him tried their best to dissuade him, advising him that he did not have to endanger his life by essentially starving for a week just to avoid eating hametz. Shimshin Stakhamer responded, he knew the halakha, but he also considered the fact that there were 2,500 Jews in the camp, and he felt that at least one of them ought to refrain from eating hametz for the duration of Pesach. He had decided that one person to refrain from eating hametz would be himself. And he states that he accepted that role upon himself with love and joy. For eight days of Shemshun Stakhama ate nothing, only drinking a little bit of water. It was only through Nisim that he was able to do this in his physical condition. It was at the time, while continuing to perform slave labor in the camp. At the very end of the war, all the inmates were rounded up and loaded into trains that headed west. The train in which Rostakheimer was riding was struck by a bomb. The rub was critically injured. He died on the 13th day of Iyam, 1945, a mere three days before liberation. Despite the roles that Rav Shemshin Stakheimer, Rav Menachem Zemba, Rav David Kahana Shapir played encouraging and infusing the ghetto's inhabitants with strength, Rav Zon related that the full impact and contribution that these gedolim made of their fellow Jews was not fully understood until he heard a particular incident. We were hauled to the forced labor camp, Bedzin, and labored there until the most brutal of conditions, under the most brutal of conditions. In the early morning darkness and the freezing temperatures of the bitter winter, we stood for line and then performed backbreaking labor under constant whippings. What provided us the secret mysterious strength and endurance to continue breathing. We're not for the torch of Torah, where I've been lost and succumbed to my sufferings. We stood together with our dear unforgettable friends, the great brothers of Ichimeya and Avram Zemba, and the well-known Warsaw Rabbanan, of Shimshul Stakhaima, of David Khan Shapiro, along with many other Torah scholars with whom we were able to discuss in Torah during those dismal nights. During the dark Alut nights, the Gemara that uh, precious Jews remembered and recited from memory served as a near tamid and eternal light to illuminate their downtrodden hearts. Rabbi Zon explained, provides a deeper understanding as to why these Gedolim felt they couldn't forsake their brethren. The Torah that they were able to discuss and impart to their, fo- to their followers illuminated their souls of the Jews, infusing them with other worldly strength and hope. It then would not be an overstatement to say that the reason why they were able to survive was a direct result of the decision reached by Rabbi Shimshon Stakheimer, Rabbi Nachem Zemba, Rabbi David Kanesh Shapiro. And in this case, I can only say that if not for the decision of Da'at Torah over 70 years ago, I would not be here today. To be machriya, to give a definitive halakha of the correct approach is impossible. It is a call that only Gedolei Olam were able to make. 
Perhaps all we can do is repeat the well-known statement found in Shas. Both sides are the word of a living God. Klal Yisrael today has been rebuilt and resuscitated through the Gedolim and Admorim who were able to escape and rebuild the yeshivas Hasidut in Israel and America. We may equally well say that Klai Yisrael had been rebuilt upon the legacy of Mesirut Nefesh, of those great souls, Manigei who with abandonment of their personal welfare, Ashlech Nafsham Meneged, to provide comfort, strength, and hope to their fellow Jews in their darkest moments. They provided a brilliant light and hope for the future generations. There was a manuscript uh, that had been submitted to Yad Vashem. It is the description of the death march of uh, our grandfather was forced to join at the very end of the war, April 1945. It has been dubbed the march from Hezentor. 700 prisoners were to participate and 200 of them were deathly ill. Typhus was rampant. They were exhausted to the point of collapse and ravaged with hunger. They were chased over mounds of ice in the darkness of night and not moving quickly enough received a bullet that freed him from having to continue on the march. And I quote, you constantly hear another weak voice bidding farewell, I cannot go on. Here is where I shall fall. If only now I were in Eretz Yisrael. Shema Yisrael Hashem No one grieved for them. No one said Kaddish for them. All we knew was that the dark night is still very long. The journey is still far, and the bullets are still in abundance. The Nabi Yehizkel said, Will these bones live once more? The Gemara discusses this curious vision when Yehizkel saw dry bones. To what did the vision allude? There were different opinions as to the meaning behind the Nazis, the Nabi's vision of the dry bones. But I have one interpretation of my own. As the marches of our nation march through the dark nights, roads past littered with graves, barely conscious before my eyes, stand the Nabi Askir as he marches in the valley of the dry bones and asks God in the days of yore with deep mournful look, will these bones live again? Friends, these bones have come to life. Look at Klai Israel. The Jewish people have had Tahiyat HaMetim. The Bono Shalom has showered us with the Ta'ala Torah, the do of the Torah, but there is still much work to do. And that's the Tushi taught that Adam Sofer built out the Malacha between the two different approaches of um, Frankfurt and the uh, and the story of Frank. Uh, There's another piece over here, just some Holocaust. Uh, Words cannot adequately describe the cruelties perpetrated against the 6,000 downtrodden Jews. The Rebbe among them is Klosenberg. During the march of Mosul to Dhaka, they were forced to traverse 70 miles on foot, not at a human pace, but at a mad dash. As they ran, the brutal SS soldiers lashed out at them with whips and steel bars to make them run faster as if they were a herd of animals. The march was conducted in intense heat and the Jews suffered from starvation and dreadful thirst. The prisoners were not allowed to stop even for a moment to rest 
It's reminiscent of the Pasuk, After marching for days on foot, they were crammed into cattle cars, which were to serve as transportation for the next leg of their journey. Forced to stand night and day without moving, in completely inhumane conditions, many died en route. The camp commander announced that any prisoner who felt too weak to make the trip on foot should step forward and tell the guards immediately, so as to be assured a spot on the bus. About 240 prisoners were fooled by this disingenuous offer of assistance. They were murdered before the march began. Fortunately, the Klosenberger Rebbe was not among them. When the march commenced and the prisoners left the Warsaw area, their rations were dry pieces of bread and salty cheese. The Germans decided the prisoners were required to walk 21 miles each day. The hungry Jews devoured the bread and salty cheese only to find that they had no way to quench their raging thirst. The summer sun beat down on them as they marched. The first day of the march was Friday, the 8th of Av. Commander of the march and his assistants rode in cars and on motorbikes. They were spread out along the marchers, as well as in the rear, to ensure that there were no stragglers. Those who failed to keep pace were run over and then shot by the soldiers who were marching alongside the prisoners. Some of the non-Jewish farmers tried to give the prisoners pails of water as they passed, but they were brutally attacked by SS guards who spilled the water on the ground. In the afternoon, the marchers reached the river. The Nazis allowed the prisoners to go down to the river for much needed water. But when the first group approached the riverbank, attack dogs were set loose on them and the guards opened fire. The surviving prisoners were able to see the river but were not allowed to drink. It was Friday night, Shabbat Hazon, and the fast being observed on Sunday. Before the war, Rosenberger Rebbe had been fond of quoting the words of the Abta Rav, Dohev Yisrael, who said that Shabbat Hazon is greater than all the Shabbatim Shabbatot of the year, and it is the holiest when the Shabbat actually falls on Shabbat. The fateful Shabbat morning, the prisoners were awakened by a piercing shriek. They rose quickly with the instincts of hunted animals to avoid the beatings of the Kapos and the SS guards. The Nazis wanted to begin the next leg of the march as early in the day as possible as to maximize the hours of daylight. As the march continued, they were forced to assume a very fast pace. The marches ran with the very last of the strength, thin bundles containing a few possessions strapped across their backs. The Rebbe refused to carry his bundle since it was Shabbat, and he quickly looked for a way to dispose of his bag without endangering himself. Yaakov Friedman, one of the Rebbe's Hasidim, was marching near the Rebbe. Without asking questions and without hesitation, he grabbed the Rebbe's bundle and proceeded to carry it himself, saying it was better if one person violates Shabbat by carrying numerous bags than for many people to transgress Shabbat by carrying their own bags. Unfortunately, a guard spotted the exchange. In a flash, he rushed over and began to mercilessly strike the Rebbe with the butt of his revolver. He pulled the Rebbe out of the row of marches and dragged him over to the commander. The guard accused the Rebbe of sabotage and demanded that he be killed. The Rebbe did not flinch. In fact, he felt what he later described as a tremendous inner joy for meriting to be killed for having not violated Shabbat. He was going to die for upholding Kiddushat Shabbat. Suddenly a miracle occurred. Another officer saw the commotion and walked over. He shouted at the Rebbe and then shoved him back in place in the throng of prisoners. The Rebbe continued to march without his bundle. He did not escape unscathed, however. The incident left the Rebbe with a large bloody wound 
near his ribcage. He would suffer from this wound for many years to come. The sun continued to beat down on the prisoners. Those who attempted to eat their bread found that their mouths and throats were too parched to swallow. Sweat dripped from their foreheads into their mouths, making them even thirstier. Even so, often at random intervals, a prisoner would fall to the ground dead. The marchers passed and villages that were famous for their vibrant Jewish communities, Sokachov, Kutna, were among the towns they passed. As they marched by, they saw the Jewish population had completely been eradicated. The sight of these Juden Rhine uh, cities was heartbreaking. It was especially painful. Arav Yudalei Volman was the last row of Sakachov. Sunday was the third day of the march, and it was the day on which the feast of Tisha B'Av was to be observed. Tisha B'Av, the most dreadful day in our calendar. On this day, the torture and killing of the marchers reached its zenith. From sunrise, the SS guards intensified the beatings of the broken and emaciated prisoners using wooden clubs and steel bars. More died on that day than any other day of the death march. Their corpses were left on the road without burial. The roads of marchers gradually thinned. At this point, anyone still alive was a skeleton, a mere shadow of his former self. Their clothes stuck to their bodies. Their faces were sunburned and covered with dust. Mouths full of dust and dirt and tongues as dry as rubber, the prisoners were dangerously dehydrated. One prisoner fell as he could no longer go on. He opened his shirt, pointed to his heart and screamed at the SS officer, give me a drink of water or shoot me right now. Neither request was granted. The man was struck down by a vicious blow to his head. The entire day, the Rebbe marched mile after painful mile in his bare feet. With the Sha'abi Ab, he did not want to violate the Alakha by wearing leather shoes. As he marched, the Rebbe whispered to himself, he was reciting Pesukim from Yilat Echa and from the Kinot. Suddenly, one of the gods noticed him and ordered him out of line. He forced the Rebbe to march along the side of the road where the surface was rocky and full of gravel and broken glass. The Rebbe attempted something very daring. Hoping not to be detected, he bent down and surreptitiously rolled into a ditch by the side of the road. The long procession of prisoners had almost passed him when one of the SS guards noticed him and started shouting at him. He grabbed his gun, aimed it toward the Rebbe, and pulled the trigger. The bullet stuck the Rebbe in the arm, which began to bleed. The Rebbe in pain made a quick calculation. He figured that if the Nazis saw that he was wounded, they would likely finish him off. Pulling some wet leaves on a nearby tree, he quickly bandaged his arm and hurried to rejoin the rows of marching prisoners. On July 29, 1980, the Klosenberger Rebbe laid the cornerstone of the San Zlanyano Hospital. At that auspicious occasion, the Rebbe addressed the assembled and related that during the death march, when he had been wounded by an SS officer, he had pledged to Hashem that were he to survive the war, he would establish a medical center for Jews. Sazanera Hospital was the fulfillment of this promise. The prisoners were on the verge of utter collapse when one of the gods barked, turn left, rest. Their eyes lit up when they heard this. They thought that they were dreaming when they be beheld the river to which they were being directed. They were ordered to sit on the banks of the river and wait there. But who among them could wait patiently by the riverbank? They were dying of thirst and some prisoners broke rank and ran to the water. The murderous Nazis raised their machine guns and shot at the prisoners at the riverbank. The blood of these unfortunate murdered Jews streamed down, mixing the water of the river. With a satanic smile on their face, 
the commander of the march made a proclamation. He declared that he was forced to kill these prisoners because of the sense of responsibility and compassion for those who were carelessly running near the river, risking their lives, as they may fall in and drown. By killing them, he prevented them from drowning and sent a message to the other prisoners to stay where they are and not put their lives in jeopardy by attempting to make their way to the river. He then viciously ordered the marchers to come back in formation. The Rebbe and Mendel Weichner managed to slip away for a moment into a group of trees that bordered a nearby field. They thirstily lapped water droplets from the wet leaves and branches, moistening their parched tongues. They made sure not to swallow a drop of water. After all, it was Tisha Be'av, and how could one possibly eat or drink on the Ta'anit? On Mutsa'ir Tisha Be'av, an open field was selected and a campsite for the prisoners. Prisoners fell to the wet ground like broken tree limbs. Exhausted and dehydrated, they could not fall asleep. Those who still had a desire to live lay on the ground and sucked whatever moisture they could out of the uh, very soil upon which they lay. The downtrodden marchers were surrounded on all sides by armed SS guards who had fallen asleep at their posts. The Rebbe whispered to those amongst them, instructing them all to dig into the ground they were resting on. Yeshua'at Hashem keref ayin. Hashem's salvation will come in the blink of an eye. Everyone began to dig, some with spoons, some with pieces of wood or sticks, others with fingernails. At first, there were only a, a, a few small holes. Then the holes became larger, and suddenly water began to flow. As the water appeared, joy engulfed the makeshift camp. Excitedly, they hugged and kissed each other in celebration. They rejoiced quietly, doing their utmost not to awaken the sleeping gods. Jews who were half dead were revived by the water. The prisoners who put parched lips were finally moistened and whose unbearable thirst was finally quenched, gave thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and praising Hashem, Shachon Yavad Baro. Hundreds of prisoners gulped down the water until they were refreshed. In the morning, the march commander and his officers looked out over the camp and took in this astonishing sight, the miracle of the water. Far from pleased, they shrugged their shoulders in disbelief and hurriedly left in the area in shame. After the war, one of the Rebbe's Hasidi, Abraham Il-Kayam Getzel Shif, wondered if the story was a story of this amazingness was actually true. He asked the Rebbe who verified the story in entirety. The Rebbe added that if there was ever a person who Shalom doubted the stories of the Torah about Abraham Avinu's ram or Miriam's well, his misgivings vanished on that day. All who were present saw that their very own eyes how the mass of the universe can provide anything at any time in any place. The miracle of the water strengthened the Rebbe's resolve. He would encourage those close to him, advising them that despite all their suffering, Hashem has a said panim, the Shalam, love was still apparent. Of the close to 6,000 prisoners who left Warsaw, fewer than 200 made it to Dachau. The Klosenberger Rebbe lost his wife and 11 children in the Holocaust. But he made a second promise to Hashem during the war he seemed to gain a new perspective on Eretz Yisrael. He promised Hashem that if he would survive, survive the Nazi inferno, he would move to Eretz Yisrael. When the Rebbe left Germany after the war, he headed to America. One of the Hasidim expressed disappointment that the Rebbe was not immigrating to Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe's response was that he was traveling to Eretz Yisrael by way of the United States. Aratz Matzke Hasid once asked the Rebbe to explain the origin of his deep love of Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe reached into a drawer and took out a sefer entitled Mahazir Atrali Yoshna Kolela Ivrim, authored by Rabbi Akiva Yosef Shlesinger. The Rebbe explained 
that this book has a profound impact on him. Its words connected his soul to Eretz Yisrael and created a longing for him to live there. If only the author's words had been heeded years previously, when the book had been published, the Jewish world would have been completely different. The Rebbe added, if our brothers had followed Rabbi Akiva Yosef's suggestion, it's likely that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, would have been spared the horrors of the Holocaust. This is something I heard. In 1953, a sofer, Rabbi Yisrael Shimon Katzdelanetz, asked the Rebbe why he had not gone to visit Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe informed him that there is no one who longs and yearns for Eretz Yisrael more than he does. Were he, were he to visit the land, he would not be able to bring himself to ever leave. The Rebbe stated that he did not want it to happen since he still had much to accomplish in the United States. When the Rebbe eventually made his way to Eretz Yisrael, he traveled via London, where he spent the Shabbat. On Shabbat afternoon, he delivered a stirring sermon to the crowd about the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. He denounced the fact that religious Jewry was largely uninvolved in the rebuilding of the Holy Land. On Motzei Shabbat, the festival of Emalka was held in the Rebbe's honor, attended by many of the leading Jews of London. Once again, the Rebbe spoke of Eretz Yisrael, about the obligation of each individual to participate in its rebuilding. One of the leaders of the community, Rashimshin Pinter, gently suggested to the Rebbe that perhaps he had gone too far in his comments in support of Eretz Yisrael and the Zionist movement. It was that moment that the Rebbe clearly enunciated a clear and dramatic shift. It seemed clear to the Rebbe that the religious Jews were busy criticizing while the secular Jews were busy taking action. They were building the land. The Rebbe noted that he himself had also been wont to curse the heretics with deep intention prior to the war. This turned out to be an exercise of futility as the secular Zionist movement continued to gain momentum, continued getting stronger. The Rebbe felt that it would be significantly better if these roles were reversed. I should build Eretz Yisrael and let them curse me. The Rebbe resolved to stop the then current mindset. We will no longer stand on the side and criticize while they govern. We must take action to build. The Rebbe even met and engaged in dialogue with the leaders of the state. On one such occasion, Megorion asked the Tosenberger Rebbe what the state of Israel meant to him and how he envisioned its future. The Rebbe responded that in the worst case scenario, he envisioned an environment where he could, where he could leave his home on Shabbat morning, <coughs> proudly wearing his striker, confident and without fear of persecution. Megorion pressed him was his best case scenario, what his best case scenario would be. Best case, he will also be wearing a strangle. <laughs> we questioned the character of several of the keynote. The origin of our exile in Christ is inappropriately crying and mourning over in Israel, thereby ripping it out of our reality. To enable the Gilad to occur, it is incumbent upon the Jewish people to reverse this. We need to make Eretz Yisrael the integral part of our lives. We need to show Hashem that we are in fact yearning and painting for Sion. <coughs> My heart tells me that this is the secret behind the format of the keynote. I felt that I received a ringing endorsement when I read the account describing the words being uttered by the Klosenberger Rebbe as his plain to call from London on the way to Eretz Yisrael. Tears streaming down his face, the Rebbe's body was trembling as he recited, Sion alotish ali, Sion ateret sevi, Sion yedidut yedid, he was crying the keynote. The Rebbe made it perfectly clear. Our objective when we recite the keynote is to reconnect with Eretz Yisrael. We need to rectify the er 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 egregious mistake that puts us into Galut in the first place. A student of the Rebbe wrote him asking if he should make Aliyah and move his family to Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe advised him, the Torah tells us, 
You can only come physically arrive at Esel, and, and then we will inherit it. Does the sky accepted the Torah without calculations? Choosing to respond, Naseh Nishma moving to Israel also ought to be without Hashbonot. The Rebbe would often say, when Yeshua ben Nun conquered Israel, he had to vanquish the king of Hashbon. Arriving in Israel can be achieved only by conquering Hashbon, overcoming the need to calculate and make Hashbonot. The Rebbe taught us that we have to develop and engender an unbridled love of Israel. It must be reflective of Habat. In the summer of 1967, the old city of Jerusalem was liberated, and Jews were able to return and pray at the remnants of the holiest places. On the first night of Sidichot, the Rebbe delivered a very powerful and moving dirasha. The Rebbe spoke about how that moment was actually one of the most painful in all of history. He told of a king whose son conducted himself in an extremely base and inappropriate manner. His actions were so despicable that the king had no choice to banish him, sending him far away from the palace. Many years passed, and the prince languished in a distant part of the country, wishing he could return home. The king eventually sent word, informing him that he could allow his son to come back to a room, informing that he would allow his son to come back to a ruin some distance from his home. However, he would not be allowed into the palace, as he could not see the father, the king. This, said the Kozumberger Rebbe, is the acute pain that we feel standing at the Kotal Ma'arabi. We were allowed to come closer, but we were not allowed to come home. This was Hargashav the Kozumberger Rebbe, with such love for Eish Yisrael. He arrived in Eish Yisrael with a new view and a new perspective, reciting Sion Halotish Ali, Sion Atiret Sevi, Sion Sefirat Pe'el Yud Yedid. This is what we are trying to accomplish by reciting the Kinot. The last group of Kinot are representative and we are striving to integrate into our very essence. When we cry on the very first Tisha we cut Eretz Yisrael out of our reality. We mourned over Eretz Yisrael. The repercussion was Eretz Yisrael would not be part of our destiny for 2,000 years. When we yearn, when we dream, when we cry for Zion, we once again make Eretz Yisrael a part of our reality. Then Bezat Hashem will once again become our national reality and we'll be able to see the true destiny of our people finally come to fruition. Amen. That's nice, sir. Nice piece. pieces here. Chabab is the most wretched day of our calendar. Miserable day. Yirmiyah Nabi was born on the Shabbat, cursed the day of his birth. From time immemorial, Shabbat has been the most tragic day for Klai Yisrael. The Mishnah records five major tragedies that, insp- that transpired on Shabbat. The Mishnah begins with the very first Shabbat of the Mishnah of Mitzrayim. The Meragilim returned home from their mission. Mishnah goes on to report 
that both the first and second temples were destroyed on Tisha The great city of Betar was captured on Tisha And Turnus Rufus plowed over Jerusalem on Tisha as well. The Prophet Yirmiyah had good reason to curse this ominous day. Throughout history, Tisha has been like a lightning rod for Jewish tragedy. The city of Alexandria, which was larger than Betar, was also destroyed. The Jewish community of England was expelled on Tisha B'Av in the year 1295. This is alluded to in the Pasuk. The Abarbanel writes, um, as the numerical value of When the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, the Jews were exiled to Babel. Many of the Jews made their way to Europe, and some arrived in Spain. Isaiah Sophia eventually returned to build the second Beit HaMikdash. He called to the Jews to return to Israel. Just as most of the Jews in Babel remained there and did not answer his appeal, so did many Jews remain in Europe, including in Spain. When the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, more Jews immigrated to Spain. About the year 68 CE, the Spanish Jews comprised two distinct factions. There were Jewish families who had been there since the destruction of Bayit Rishon. And there was a second group comprised of the Jews who arrived there after Qurban Bayit Sheni. For about 1400 years, there was a large flourishing Jewish community in Spain. The major Torah academies of Babel, Sun and Pupidita declined in the 10th century, and Spain subsequently became the epicenter of Torah Jewry. There was an expression, the golden age of Spain. However, this is somewhat inaccurate. There was no golden age for Spanish Jewry. Jewish history in Spain was replete with massacres, pogroms, and persecutions continuously. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were burned, tortured, and forcibly converted. Jewish history is relative. There was a small window of about 200 years during which we had some degree of respite. However, the vast majority of the 1400 years that we were in Spain, from 68 until 1492 was one long stream of anti-Semitism and persecution. Ironically, the only respite occurred when Spain was overrun by the Mohammedans, but there was no tranquility for Spanish Jewry, while Spain was under the dominion of Rome and the Christian world. The golden age of Spain appears to be a misnomer. Rabbi Al-Kitov explains that the origin and meaning of the seemingly misplaced title is the result of a classic Jewish phenomenon that is commonly seen in the exile. As Klaisel journeys to Galut, upon occasion we find ourselves looking back longingly at a time that we erroneously recollect as having been wonderful experience, but is merely a product of our collective imagination. We saw this when B'nai said were in the Midbar, and they said, Zachanu et We remember the tasty fish and the other delicacies which were partake in living in Messiah. The people were remembering events that had never transpired. Mitzrayim was a holocaust. We were enslaved with intensely challenging and physically crushing labor. Our children were disposed in the Nile, unceremoniously tossed into the Nile River. When brick quotas were unmet, Jewish children were used in lieu of missing bricks. Before 80% of our people perished. We suffered terribly, yet our memory narrowed into one fact. We had fish. And suddenly our time in Mitzrayim seems to have been pleasant. This is part of our Jewish nature, to focus on one small benefit and have found me- fond memories of that specific point in time. So to write to the Al-Kitov, the golden age of Spain is somewhat a misconception.
we know a great deal about the Spanish Inquisition. Much of what we know and understand about the black time in history is gleaned from secular sources. In contrast, the following is what is considered the most authoritative and comprehensive first-hand account for perhaps the greatest Jewish luminary of the time, Rabbi Don Isaac of Barbanel, whom the Beit Yosef refers to as Hanesher Agadol, the Great Eagle. Don Isaac of Barbanel lived in 1438 to 1508. He was a prolific writer, authoring Rosh Emunah, a commentary on the Rambam's Moren Evuchim, a Haggadah called Zebach Pesach, and a trilogy on the coming of Mashiach, under the heading Migdol Yeshuot, Yeshuot Meshicho, Ma'ayinah Yeshuah, and Mashmi'ei Yeshuah, and of course his magnum opus, his Perush Tanakh. Barbanel records with astonishing historical information in his Akhtamah to Sifri Yoshua, in the Perush to Hoshea, and most extensively his introduction to Sifri Melachim. Barbanel began his career in Portugal, where he was an advisor to King Alfonso, whom he described as a righteous ruler. When Alfonso died in 1481, he was succeeded by his son, John, or Joe, pronounce it, executed, uh, and uh, Joe executed most of the father's advisors, whom he falsely accused of treason. I guess, uh, Ho, Jose. The Barbanel was among those summoned by Ho, allegedly to provide advice and guidance. However, the Barbanel was warned as to the king's true intentions and told that his life was in danger. He immediately fled with his pursuers at his back. He crossed the border into Spain, literally moments ahead of his pursuers. He arrived in Spain penniless and in complete anonymity, something that can be at times valuable for a rabbi. Residing in Toledo, his newfound respite allowed him to work on commentary of Sefer Yoshua, Shofetim, and Shemuel. Not long thereafter, he was summoned to serve as the finance minister to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. In this capacity, the Babel assisted the king and queen in raising Spain to the status of financial superpower. However, peace and tranquility will not last for the Barbanel. In the year 711 CE, the Arabs had crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and conquered large parts of the Iberian Peninsula. Ferdinand and Isabella embarked on their ambition of reconquesta, to reconquer the region and wrest it from Arab control. In 1487, Malaga fell to Christian monarchs, which only, with only a single Arab stronghold remaining to complete the Spanish goal of reconquesta. And then the ominous year 1492 arrived. On January 2nd, 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella won a great victory. They attacked and conquered Granada. This was one of the greatest victories in world history. Granada was annexed to the Kingdom of Spain. When arrogant King Ferdinand returned from battle, he sought to find a way to show gratitude to God of the religion that he was newly embraced in Spain. In the words of Abad there is no better way to repay my God than to gather all these miserable Jews who walk in darkness together and force them to embrace the true religion. And if they fail to do so, I will banish them from Iberian Peninsula. Ababan adds, Yatsa devar amelech vedato. Many aharonim find the mazim. Many aharonim find the mazim in Tanakh in this year of tragic events. The Abarbanel writes that it is the year in which the Pasuk in Yemiyah was fulfilled. scattered Israel, he shall gather him. The word Mizareh is the name is the 1492. 
there is a formula that can be employed to convert the Jewish calendar year to secular calendar. We drop the millennial number from the Hebrew date and then add the number 1240. This will provide the current secular date. As an example, we are currently in the Jewish year 5781. Dropping the five, the millennial number now is 781. Adding 780 to 1240 gives 2021, which is the current year of the secular calendar. So again, the rule is, there's a formula can be employed to convert the Jewish calendar year to the secular. We drop the millennium number from the Hebrew date and then add the number 1240. So again, as an example, 5781, dropping the five, so we end up with 781, and I guess adding 780 to 1240, or 781 to 1240, gives 2021, which is the current year. which is the name is to the year 1492 as a of 252. When we add the number to 1240 to arrive at 1492, mm-hmm. that's the Pasukin Yemiah hints at the year 1492. Again, Mezare, which is the name of the year 1492, which is a Gematria 252 Mezare. We then add the number to 1240, well, 1240 to 252, to arrive at 1492. The Sefer Semach Sedek was authored by Rav David Gans, the Tamir of the Ramah. As a young man, he traveled from Germany to Krakow because he yearned to learn Torah from the Ramah. Rav David Gans was an accomplished astronomer who corresponded with the renowned astronomers of his time. Teichel Brahe and Johannes Kepler. He had been encouraged by the Ramah to write a book on history. The Tzemach Siddiq identified the name is of the 1492 in the Pasuk. The word Rabim has a numerical value of 252. Once again, a reference to the year 1492 and its desolation. One of the Gedulei Yisrael who was among the Gerushe Sfarad was Rabbi Yosef Ya'avetz. In his Sefer Ora Hayin, he offered reasons that he believed to explain why Klai was subjected to such nefarious decrees. The Bnei Yisachar, the Sfiyali Menech Medinov, in his commentary to Rabbi Ya'avetz's Sefer, notes another name as to the 1492, the Pasuk Beron Yahad Koch Beboker. Beron has the Gematia 252. Again, a reference to the year 1492. Additionally, he points out that the word Beron is an acronym for the Ena Be'onyenu, a prayer of the Shemona asking Hashem to please note our suffering. The Barbanel documents that King Ferdinand issued a proclamation that any Jews who could not accept Christianity as their faith within a three-month period would be banished from Spain. The three-month window concluded in the ominous month of Av. This writes to Abar Banel is the meaning of the Pasuk, Bahashem Bagadu, Kibanim Zanim Yaladu, Atayochilim Chodesh et Halkehem. The month that was predestined for Jewish tragedy, the month that consumed them once again with the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, and only left a small remnant. This month will consume even that small remnant of the Jewish people, that tiny faction. Frighteningly, not only did King Ferdinand set the date for the month of Ab, but the dagger in the heart was the fact that the final date of ultimatum, conversion or expulsion, was Thursday, August 2nd, 1942, Tisha Mistake, 1492, Tisha B'Av. King Ferdinand did not intentionally pick Tisha B'Av. 
והוא לא ידע מזה הזמן דבר. That's what the Abarbanel said. כאילו מן השמיים הדריכוהו להגבלת הזמן הזה. Abarbanel said it was God that brought him to that date. Thus the law was set in place. Any Jew in Sephardat, Sicily, Majorca, Sardinia, was forced to decide between converting to Christianity and being evicted from his home and country. Rabbi Bernard describes sitting in the palace when this decree was issued, unable to contain himself. He risked his life and limb by shouting, save these people, what do you want from them? Why are you doing this? If it is money you seek, we are ready to pay a hefty fee for each Jew. Money is not the issue. He pleaded with the officers and with the officials who were in charge of enforcing this awful edict. On the day before the Gezira was signed, Intolo de Barre pleaded with King Ferdinand himself. The king was moved by his impassionate pleas and was ready to reconsider. However, the evil inquisitor, Thomas de Torcomanda, rushed into the room, carrying a cross and ranting and raving. His arrival shook Ferdinand and Isabella to the core. Terrified, they ordered the Abba out of the room and they signed the decree. All Jews were required to convert or leave by Tisha Be'av. The Abarbanel is that as evil, that as evil as King Ferdinand may have been, it was Queen Isabella's incitement that really drove the evil ruling. Interestingly, Turkamanda was Queen Isabella's personal confessor. In 1483, he was appointed to the role of Grand Inquisitor. With a few years of his assumption of his past, of his post, The Spanish Inquisition took over 30,000 lives. The cries of the victims of torture chambers reverberated throughout Spain. The smoke from the pyres of the Auto de Fe hovered like a dark cloud over the Iberian Peninsula. Abbebenel writes, since being exiled from Yerushalayim, Clarice has not experienced a tragedy as severe as what happened in Spain. In that three-month period, primarily towards its end, during the time between Shivasa and Tammuz and Shabbat, 300,000 Jews were forced to leave Spain. This figure does not include the hundreds of thousands who accepted the alternative and converted to Christianity. In addition, another 200,000 Jews had converted to Christianity in 1391, 101 years prior. Abba was given an exemption to this evil decree. He alone was given permission to remain in his home unharmed, without having to renounce his faith. He could continue in his capacity as the prime minister. However, he chose to leave with his brothers and sisters, and he joined them as they were exiled. He describes that, As they left their homes, the Jews were comforted by one thing and one thing only. They felt the Shekhinah, the Rebunosh Olam, was going into exile with them. They were not alone. When they embarked on their journey, the Jews had no idea where they would go. Some went to Portugal, others to Nevada. Suffering, broken, hungry, and tired, many opted to travel by sea. Rabbi testifies, many of their boats capsized or sank. He himself boarded a ship bound for Naples. During the course of the travels, he lost the only manuscript of Pirush on Sefer Devarim. When he arrived in Corfu, he met someone who, who somehow had made a copy of this manuscript. Rabbi Benin utilized this copy and he published his Sefer on Devarim. In the year 1493, Rabbi Benin and his fellow refugees were strangers in a foreign land. As he writes, Girim Ainu, the word Girim is Gimatria 253, alluding to the year 1493. It was during this time, while living in Naples, Abba Benel completed his commentary on Sefer Menachim. Rabbi Hayel Alpern wrote a very important historical treatise entitled Seder Adorot, the high regard in which the Sefer is held apparent from the fact that Avchida not only studied it, but wrote footnotes on the text. Alpern was a descendant of the Maharshal, and he writes that the entirety of the Tanakh was manifest, 
the, the entirety of the Tukhaha was manifest during the time the Jews were exiled from Spain. The Girushin Sfarad suffered tremendously, and all of the curses contained in the Tukhaha were fulfilled. He records, a refugee from Spain, a Jew expelled from his home, fled by sea. He was accompanied by his elderly father and his young son. His father was weak and hungry, and he was slowly dying of starvation. When the boat docked, the man set out to obtain food for his father. Without having any money to purchase food, he begged the baker for a loaf of bread. The baker refused, but eventually agreed to give him a loaf of bread in exchange for his son. The man in terrible quandary, he opted to leave his son at the bakery and ran back to his dying father with the loaf. Sadly, when he returned to his father, he found that his soul had already been returned to his creator. The refugee raced back to the bakery. The evil baker refused to accept the returned loaf, and he would not allow the child to leave with his father. This is truly one of the most terrible episodes I've ever heard. The Bible now writes that Klai Yisrael had not experienced the tragedy of the magnitude of the Spanish Inquisition since the time of Hurban Bet HaMikdash, when we exiled from Yerushalayim. These words of the Babanim reverberate in my mind, prompting one simple question. It is Tisha Be'av. We are not eating, we are not drinking, we are not sitting on the ground, we are wearing our usually footwear. We gather together in Shul, we lament and cry about the Khutban Abayit, the destruction of the Mikdash. We recite the Kinot. We cry for other tragedies that have befallen. The Kinot are not limited to any specific event. In the 21st Kinah, we cry for the Asarar of Gemal Khut. In the 25th and, and 3rd keynote, we lament the Bemond Gizrot of Tatna, the horrible abuse we experienced at the ends of the Crusades, near 1096. <clears throat> in Kinah 41, Sha'ali Sirufa Ba'esh, we cry for the public disgrace of Asafre Kodesh, the burning of the volumes of the Talmud in the streets of Paris in 1241. More recently, we have begun to incorporate keynote that were authored specifically to lament the horrors of the Holocaust, a tragedy affected so many. We include these in the Sha'ab liturgy. As we study the Sha'ab Kinot, we are struck by an oddity. There is an event that is glaringly and conspicuously absent. Where is the Kinah lamenting the expulsion of the Jews from Spain? Why is there no reference at all to what the Al-Barbanel dubbed the worst tragedy to happen since we were expelled from Yerushalayim? The entirety of Kinot is recited and the day of the Sha'ab goes by, no mention of the Spanish Inquisition. I would like to share a historical fact. As the 300,000 Jews were leaving Spain on Tisha Abba 1492, there was a psaq issued by the Gedolei Israel, among them the Barbanel, the ruling issue, the Hora'at Sha'a, for that specific time, as they should be accompanied on their journey by orchestral music. They left Spain amidst music and song. On Tisha Abba, the musicians played, something we normally regard as forbidden. There are a few reasons for this interesting ruling. The Rabbanim sought to boost the spirits of the exiled multitudes who were forced to abandon their homes. They wanted to encourage them, to infuse them with hope and bitahon that Hashem was with them. Furthermore, they were employing music as a way of expressing gratitude to Hashem that they were stood in the Sayon and not convert to Christianity. They were zocher to be mekadeshim shamayim, to sanctify God's name. And that was a cause for celebration. And the Kitov tells another reason for the music that filled the air as the Jews were expelled from Spain. There was a fundamental lesson being taught by the seemingly incongruous act. The Rabbanim wanted Klaiser to learn that we never cry when we leave Galut. We shed tears only when we leave Yerushalayim. Therefore, they were directed to leave Spain, not with tears, but with music and song. It was a tragedy, a devastating event. 300,000 Jews were left homeless, evicted from a country where they had flourished for centuries. 
but they had never truly belonged in Spain. They were not really living their, leaving their homes. They were leaving a place of exile, a stopping place along the road of Galut. A Jew does not cry when he leaves a place of exile because we don't belong there. Rabbi well, Michael Halpern records the following startling comment in his entry for the year 1620. In writing about the suffering at the hands of the Crusades, the author of the Sema, the Sippin Mitzvot Me'irot Enayim, was asked why the community of worms suffered far more persecution, pogroms, and gezerot ra'ot, even decrees and edicts during the times of the Crusades than any other Keilah. The Sema writes that the Keilah of Ramaysia was founded by Jewish exilees who made their way to Germany following the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. After 70 years of exile, many Jews returned from Babylonia to Eretz Israel, but none returned from worms. Community in Yerushalayim wrote to the people of Worms, urging them to join them in their new homes and their settlement in Jerusalem. The complacent Jews of Worms dismissed the invitation. They responded, you stay where you are in the great Yerushalayim and we will stay where we are in the little Yerushalayim. They were too comfortable in Galut. This is why they suffered more devastation than the rest of European Jewry. Of Abraham Sabah, one of the great Kadmonim, was one of the leaders among the Girushes Farad and author of the Sroda Mor. He was similarly asked why the Jews of Spain suffered so much. What was the reason they suffered such a terrible fate? Sroda Mor answered, it was their arrogance that they were under the illusion that they were in their own land and they constructed homes that were grand and ostentatious like palaces. The B or mainly I'm compelled to believe the reason there is no kina for the Spanish expulsion is the very same reason that they play music as they left Spain. As painful as it may be, we do not cry when we leave Galut. As hard as it is, we cry only when we leave Yerushalayim. This is the lesson of the downfall of Spanish Jewry. As successful and affluent as a person may be, it is crucial never to get too comfortable. We don't belong here, and we are not going to be here forever. As grandiose as the golden age of Spain was, never have Jews in history and our people been more comfortable in Galut than in America. Just how comfortable we are in the golden of Medina, just look at the contemporary scene of American Jewry. Seven out of every ten Jewish weddings are intermarriage. Even in our somewhat insulated society, we build homes, we drive cars, we conduct ourselves, so we're going to be staying in this country forever. And I hate to break it to you, it's not the reality. America is merely a stop along the long road of our bitter exile. Chaim Velazhena, primary student of the Vilna Gaon, has recorded his father's concept of the yeshiva world as we know it today. One morning in Chaim's yeshiva, the Bahurim was surprised by the onset of terrible and painful crying in the middle of the Shemona Asef Sha'ari. They looked for the source of the loud wailing and astonished to see Chaim Velazhena sobbing uncontrollably. Students began to tremble, tears welling up in their eyes at the sight of the Rosh Hashiva crying bitterly. When davening was over, Chaim left the Beit HaMidrash to enter his private study. Tamidim of the Yeshiva could not understand what capacity had moved the Rosh Hashiva to tears in the middle of praying. They asked Rav David Tavil, the author of the Sifna Halat David, to approach Chaim and ask him what has moved him to tears. David entered Rav Chaim's study with great trepidation, and a quivering voice asked Rav Chaim what the entire student body of the yeshiva was gripped with fear as a result of the Rebbe's crying. At first, Rav Chaim was reluctant to explain. Eventually, he acquiesced, taking the fact that he had been moved to tears publicly in the presence of his students as a sign from Hashem that he should, in fact, include them in the reason. Rav Chaim told Rav David, my dear Tamid, you should know they will come and the pillars of European Jewry will topple when the yeshivas will be uprooted and destroyed. But there will be one more stop before the arrival of Mashiach. The last stop will be America. The 10th and final exile of the Torah will be in America. 
Babylon, North Africa, Egypt, Italy, Spain, France, Germany, Poland, Lithuania, and America. America is the last stop. Aaron Kalit in the Mishnah Aharon records an authentic Mesorah, Ahaniyah Aharonah, Tiyah America. Here we are at the final stop of this long and arduous journey. As we know, Galut, we don't know how much longer we will be here. We hope that we'll be here with Shalom and peace until the stop is over. We can finally return. But the sad verdict of history is that when a stop along the Galut journey comes to an end, we are lucky. We can leave fast enough with the shirts on our back. If there is one thing we learn from the omission of the Spanish Inquisition from the keynote, if there is one thing that we can learn from the music of the Girushe Sparad, is that we never cry when we leave Galut. We don't belong in Galut, and we never belong in Galut. We don't belong in Spain, and we don't belong in North Africa. Neither do we belong in France, Hungary, Poland, or America. We belong in Eretz Israel, we belong in Yerushalayim. If we merely open your eyes, we will appreciate that we live in historic times. We see the words of the Nebim coming fruition. All the Nebim promise that all the coming of the Mashiach, the Rebunah Shalom, will gather Klai said to Eretz Yisrael. Every decade recently we have seen Hashem doing justice, gathering Jews to Eretz Yisrael, first the Iranians, and the Russian Jews, and the following decades the Jews of Ethiopia, or recently the Jews of France have made their way, and now even the Jews of Ukraine. There's no question that here in America are coming up on Hashem's list of those to return. Just as so we know Spain triumphantly, a song, we hope firmly pray the final stop will not last much longer. And, we'll be, and this will be the last tearful, mournful to Shabbat. We zuchir to go to Yerushalayim together. Amen. Time to buy Israel. That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. Very strong, uh, strong peace. Okay.